Your patient has been told that they need a new liver to survive. How can you help them to have the best chances of finding a new liver in time to save their lives? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Robert Brown, Associate Professor of Medicine and Surgery at the Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation, Columbia University Medical Center, and Chief, Division of Abdominal Organ Transplantation at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me. Today we are discussing how to help your patient who is waiting for a liver. Dr. Brown, when a patient presents to you with severe liver disease, how do you determine if you can continue to treat them medically or that they need a liver transplant? I approach liver transplantation like we do any therapy for end-stage liver disease. It's about risks and benefits. We know what the risks of the transplant procedure are. It's somewhere between a 10 and 15% one-year mortality and about a 15 to 20% five-year mortality in well-selected individuals. So generally what is viewed is the minimum listing criteria is an expected survival without transplant under 90%. This generally corresponds to either a child's pew classification of B, or if you're going to use the mathematical model for end-stage liver disease, or MELD, this is a formula needs to be done on a computer using the bilirubin, the creatinine, and the INR, measures of liver and kidney function, in a logarithmic mathematical model. You can find it on the Internet if you Google MELD. And any MELD score above 10 is generally viewed as an indication for transplant. Simply put, really almost anyone who has had a complication of cirrhosis and portal hypertension should at least be considered the development of ascites, variceal bleeding, or encephalopathy. All these are harbingers that survival is impaired and transplant should at least be considered. When you first present to the patient that they may need a transplant, do they accept this willingly or do they say, let's see if we can just continue to treat me medically? I think you get a variety of responses. I have some patients with hepatitis C who don't need a transplant who say they just want to be on the list. Others view that this is something they only want to take when they're at the end of their rope. I try to approach it with each individual. For those who really need a transplant but don't feel ready in their mind, I try to tell them that this is, they can think of this as an insurance policy. Certainly to be evaluated and listed is not a requirement to actually undergo the procedure. Those that are sick enough to be prioritized for transplant generally feel sick enough that they want it. We're fortunate in the U.S. that we use a severity of disease-based allocation system. So the patients who generally want to wait probably will have to wait because their score is not high enough. Tell us about this list, where it is, and who makes the decisions surrounding this list. That's a great question because this is really a source of confusion to patients and often even to their physicians. 
because we like to think that we have a national system for organ allocation, when in reality we don't. The waiting list is a central list, which is maintained at the United Network for Organ Sharing, which is located in Richmond, Virginia. And they carry the contract with the government to coordinate organ procurement and allocation across the United States. However, organ allocation is done on a local level, meaning that organs are procured and then distributed first to patients within the local organ distribution unit, which can be as small as a city or as big as several states. And it's only if no candidates within that local organ distribution unit are accepted for that organ that it gets shared first regionally and then nationally. And this has led to disparities in access to organs across the country. And so if you look at either waiting times, waiting list mortality, or likelihood of getting a transplant, that is variable depending on where you live. And you can imagine a scenario where someone is critically ill on one side of a state line and an organ becomes available on the other side and goes into a patient who is much healthier and at home. And this is something that we are just beginning to address in the organ transplant field. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. Robert Brown, Associate Professor of Medicine and Surgery at the Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation, Columbia University Medical Center, and Chief, Division of Abdominal Organ Transplantation at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Today we are discussing how to help your patient who is waiting for a liver. Dr. Brown, you mentioned some of the regional inequities of the ability to receive a liver if you live on one side of the state or the other. What is being done to correct this? Well, we have taken several steps. First is for patients who are critically ill with acute liver failure, we already have regional sharing. The second thing that has been initiated we call SHARE15 which requires that before a liver goes into a patient with a MELD score or a priority score based on liver severity under 15, it gets offered out regionally to patients with MELD scores above 15. This has minimized some of these disparities, but many people feel that larger steps need to be taken. How we're going to do this to optimize access and preserve fairness and justice within the system without making organs travel, you know, across the state and crisscrossing the country leading to inferior outcomes is something that we are currently studying. Do children receive greater priority than adults? Currently, they are getting some increased access to pediatric livers. There was a concern that children were being underserved in the MELD system. To try to counteract that, many areas now provide improved access to pediatric organs so that small children 
don't get systematically denied access because they're not eligible to receive full-size adult organs. Now, there have been some interesting fictional movies about organ transplantation. Is there a black market for organ transplantation? I do not think there's a black market for organ transplantation in the United States. Well, what about people going abroad? Well, the issue of transplant abroad is one that I think our country is going to have to tackle in the not-too-distant future. How's that? This practice is certainly increasing. As people are desperate on the waiting list, they feel the need and their families feel the need to do whatever it takes to obtain an organ. As surgical expertise has increased in other countries, the ability to travel outside the country and obtain an organ from either a deceased or a living donor has increased. And there is some concern about exploitation, exploitation both of the donors as well as exploitation of the recipients. This practice, which has been called by some transplant tourism, is something that we are going to have to deal with going forward. Many have felt that we shouldn't be using the term transplant tourism because it makes it into a vacation, when in reality this is really a very serious process in which there have been adverse outcomes and oftentimes you know, wholesale cheating and stealing from these desperate families who are trying to get a life-saving organ transplant. Have you ever had personally any patients who have done this? Yes, I have. Uh, I have had patients who have gone to uh, other countries to obtain organs. And what do they tell you? The experience has been variable. Some have had really good results, in particular people who were native to that country who returned home. Others have had experiences that seem to approach things that you can hear about in the movies with organ brokers who demand large amounts of money and then coming home with nothing. And what countries are usually the ones where they end up? There are a lot of countries that have been involved. China, Colombia, India have all been places that have done uh, these types of procedures. China has recently eliminated the practice of using executed prisoners as donors for uh, organ transplantation, and I suspect that will decrease the transplant activity in China. But we are going to see this practice continue, and I think it's really incumbent on us as transplant professionals and also on the government to make sure that we protect not only our patients, but also that we uh, don't allow exploitation of the poor in some of these other countries. And finally, if you had a crystal ball, what would you say the future holds for living donor transplantation? Well, I'm hopeful that living donor transplantation will evolve for livers to a point where we can use a smaller amount of liver from the donor and regulate regeneration, either preoperatively in the donor or more likely postoperatively in the recipient, either by enhancing regeneration or by providing a temporary liver support in the recipient to allow us to do smaller and smaller operations in the donor. Obviously, if we had adequate sources of deceased donor grafts, 
we would never have to do living donor operations. But I don't see that in the foreseeable future. I also don't see that non-human organs or xenotransplantation as anywhere near enough in the horizon that we are going to see a decrease in the need for living donors in my career. We can always hope, but I think that living donation is really a part of our transplant armamentarium and will be so for as long as I can see. I want to thank Dr. Robert Brown, who has been our guest. We have been discussing how to help your patient who is waiting for a liver. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.